Hello, baseball fans, and welcome to another episode of the Round Trippers podcast. I am your host, Austin Spiro. Thank you all for listening once again to another edition of the podcast. And this week, we are going to talk about all the events that happened during this All-Star break. We're going to talk a little bit about the Home Run Derby, the All-Star game itself, and then we're going to focus on the future. So we're going to focus on the futures game, the draft that also took place this break, as well as looking forward to the Olympic baseball and softball teams. And then we're going to talk a little bit of fantasy baseball, if you didn't get enough last week with Felipe and myself. Let's start with uh, the festivities of the last few weeks with the All-Star break. So we had a lot going on the last few days. We had the All-Star game. We had the Futures game. We had the draft. We had the Home Run Derby. Let's talk first about the Home Run Derby. So the Home Run Derby for me was actually kind of surprising in that nobody, not I didn't, there was a lot of people that I thought were going to win that were gone in the first round. Um, I had Otani beating Gallo, who I thought Gallo was going to put on a laser show, and turns out he didn't, um, but that, that happens. Um, and then I also had Mancini going out in the first round. I had Shohei beating Soto. I had a lot of things. I had Olsen advancing. I, a lot of things went wrong in my bracket, so I was nowhere close to being right. But it was still entertaining nonetheless. So I was really happy, actually, to see that Mancini made it to the finals. He actually put up a really, really good showing. He just ran into a buzzsaw in the finals that whose name is Pete Alonzo. That dude was an absolute animal during this home run derby. Um, he was hitting the cover off of this baseball, and he was he was having a good time with it, and he was in a good rhythm. You could just tell he was prepared to get into it, and he was prepared to win this thing. Very well-deserved. And now, Alonzo becomes, I believe, only the third back-to-back winner in the Home Run Derby. And not only that, he has earned more money winning Home Run Derbies than he has in his entire baseball career. He only makes league average. But he's won $2 million of earnings in winning two Home Run Derbies. In his entire career, he's only earned about $1.6-$1.7 million. That's pretty crazy. So, we'll see because during the last couple seasons, he's been underachieving a little bit, but he's got pop in his back. So, it'll be interesting to see what kind of payday he gets once his contract is up. But the real MVP of this should really be Jouse, who was... Alonzo's pitcher for this home run derby. When you looked at a lot of the other pitchers, Beasley for Gallo, Brown for Shohei, and then whoever pitched for Olsen and people like that, they were god-awful. They were terrible. Um, Shohei, I think, picked a terrible person to pitch to him because he hadn't seen Shohei since March. He hadn't pitched anything to Shohei since March. They didn't even practice together. So I think that was a terrible decision by Otani. Um, Beasley could not find Gallo's sweet spot. I think on top of that, Gallo was trying to hit him out of the park, and his swing is naturally meant to create lift on the baseball. So I think a combination of Beasley being bad and Gallo trying to hit homers really screwed him up. Um, Olsen, I was shocked that Olsen didn't make it. And I felt really bad for Salvador Perez because Salvador Perez actually put up a really, really good number in his first round of the Home Run Derby. He just, again, ran into the buzzsaw of Pete Alonso in the first round. He got a bad draw. I think if he was up against anybody else, I think he would have won the first round and at least gone to the semifinals, which I was actually really surprised that Perez put up that much, put up that kind of number. So, anyway... It was good to see, good for Alonzo, good for Mancini to make the finals. I was really happy to see that. I'm not mad that Alonzo won, and I'm not mad that Mancini made it to the finals. Moving on to the All-Star game. So, again, the NL does not show up, and 
they are they get the loss again for the ninth straight year. The AL has won nine straight All-Star games, and this time the AL won it on the back of Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who has become the youngest player ever to win the All-Star Game MVP at just 22 years old. He had a tape measure 468-foot shot, but he also played some small ball, hitting an opposite field single for an RBI. He really put on a really good show all around, hit, you know, hitting. Um, but the AL altogether really did a great job at not only hitting the ball f- for power, but they also played some pretty good small ball. Now, this really should have been, they really should have rebranded this as AL East versus the NL because it was just a clinic put on by the AL East. Vladimir Guerrero Jr., the Blue Jays, won the MVP. You had Red Sox players, you know, players on the Red Sox hitting RBIs. You had um, Cedric Mullins getting, you know, setting the table. You had uh, Aaron Judge setting the table. You know, you had Devers hitting, um, hitting Judge first to third. It was really a show for the AL East. Now, granted, most of the AL team, especially the starters, most of the AL starters were AL were AL East players. They were either Red Sox or Blue Jays or Orioles or Yankees, right? So there really isn't anything much you can say to that. Just the AL East is still proving to be one of the best divisions because they get to the All-Star game and they just completely demolished an entire league. They demolished the NL. So I really think that the AL rode the back of the AL East. So moving on to the future of baseball seems that it seems that the NL is going to have a bright future. Because uh, we're going to talk about the Futures game here. And the Futures game, really, you saw it the other way around. It was the NL Futures putting on a clinic with the AL Futures. The NL Future, uh, the NL Future squad beat the AL Future squad 8-3 to on the strength of five home runs. Two of which went to the MVP of the entire game, Brennan Davis of the Chicago Cubs system. So... A quick takeaway from that is the NL, they've got some thump coming up. They've got some good pitching coming up too because the pitching really handled the AL for a long time. They held a a lot of AL players, had a lot of goose eggs, right? So let's break it down and let's go to individual players here and let's show some highlights. So let's go to the winners, the NL Futures. So in the NL Future squad, you had Drew Waters, who was the number 25 prospect for the Atlanta for the Atlanta Braves. He went one for one with a walk. You had Jose Barrero, who is the number 85 uh, prospect in all of MLB. He's in the Cincinnati Red system. He went one for one with a homer, uh, an RBI, two runs, and a walk. Nolan Gorman uh, in the St. Louis Cardinal system. He's the number 28 prospect of in all of baseball. He went one for two with an RBI double and a run. Uh, Brennan Davis, we've already mentioned him. He's the number 45 prospect in all of MLB. He's in the Chicago Cubs system. He went two for three with two bombs, two RBIs, and two runs. Francisco Alvarez, the number 34 prospect in all of MLB in the New York Mets system. He went one for one with a solo shot and an RBI. And then finally, uh, Michael Toglia, the number three Colorado Rockies prospect. He's not ranked in all of MLB, but... He he's ranked in the Colorado Rockies system. He's he went one for three with a homer, two RBIs, and a run. Let's look on the pitching side for the NL futures. Uh, Matthew Libertori, who we've heard a little bit for the last couple of years, he was a kind of a focal point of a trade um, a while back between the Rays and the and the Cardinals. He pitched an inning of scoreless ball with a strikeout. He's the number twenty-seven prospect in all of baseball. The number 27 Dodger prospect, not MLB, the number 27 Dodger prospect, Andre Jackson, stepped up and pitched a hit, pitched an inning of scoreless baseball with only giving up a hit. Uh, Nick Lodolo in the Cincinnati Red system, he's the number 43 prospect in all of baseball. He pitched an inning of scoreless ball with a strikeout. Cade Cavalli, 
he had a bit of a rocky inning, but he ended up getting out of it scoreless. So he's the number 77 prospect in all of baseball. He's in the Washington National System. He pitched an inning of scoreless ball with two strikeouts and two walks. So he got out of a jam, which is nice to see. You have Manuel Rodriguez, who's not ranked in the Cubs system. He's not ranked in the MLB system. He's not ranked at all. He was just having a really good season this year. He pitched an inning of scoreless baseball with a strikeout and a walk. Okay. And so that was the highlight to the NL Futures. Let's go to the AL Futures. So in the AL Futures, you still had some bright spots. So you had Riley Green, who is the number 15 prospect in all of baseball in the Detroit Lions system. He went two for three with a run. You had Spencer Torkelson, who is the number three prospect in all of baseball. He's also in the Detroit system. He went one for two with a rock with a walk and a run. Jeter Downs, who was a big part in the trade for uh, David Price and um, David Price and Mookie Betts um, from the Dodgers to the Red Sox. He's now in the Red Sox system. He's the number 35 prospect in all of baseball. He went one for two with a double, two RBIs and a run. So some offensive, some offensive light going on there for the for the AL. Um, going to the pitching. Again, pitching was very, very rough, but there were some people that showed up. So Shane Baz, who is also on the American Olympic team, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit. Shane Baz is the number 71 prospect in all of baseball. Uh, He's in the Rays system. He pitched an inning of scoreless ball with two strikeouts. And what was really nice to see was some of the pitchers in the Angels system were showed up to play, even though the AL pitching staff was not great. They were bo- they were two bright spots. So Hector Yan, who's the number nine Angels prospect, he's in the Angels system. He pitched two-thirds of an inning of scoreless ball, only giving up a walk, but he faced three batters. So that means he walked a guy, got a double play somewhere, and then got the third out. So it, that's really nice to see he's getting himself out of a jam. Reed Detmers, who is the number 57 prospect in all of baseball and the number two prospect in the uh, Angels system, only behind Brandon Marsh, he went two-thirds of an inning with two Ks. Very nice job from the youngster. So, the the other thing I thought was, well, maybe the NL brought more, um, more top 100 prospects than the AL did. That's not the case, though. They brought the exact same. 16... They each brought 16 players from the top 100 prospects. So altogether, 32 of the top 100 prospects in baseball played in this game. But the NL pretty much had that game handled from start to finish. So my takeaway from that is the NL has really got some good prospects coming up. So it'll be interesting to see in future future games, future All-Star games, future World Series, how the NL really competes with the AL. The other thing that I noticed is uh, the time seems to be now for Brennan Davis. It would be really nice to see him maybe. They're struggling this year, so maybe he gets pulled up late this year. Maybe he gets pulled up next year. It seems like, though, he's ready. He's ready for for the bigs. The other thing that I noticed is you've got two really good performers in Riley Green and Spencer Spencer Torkelson from the Detroit Tiger system. So maybe the the Tigers have got something that they're getting ready to put together. They got some nice youngsters, the Spencer Turnbulls, the the Torkelsons, Riley Greens. They've got some they've got some young guys coming up and maybe once they get underneath the uh, out from underneath the contract of Miguel Cabrera, maybe AJ Hinch should be able to pull something together. That'll be really interesting to see. And the other thing, the Angels, what I just talked about, the Angel prospects, both pitching, and right now the Angels are starving for pitching. And I'm going to talk about the draft here in a minute, but they just drafted in the first round, they drafted a pitcher, uh, Bachman, out of the uh, University of Miami in Ohio. So if you've got Jan and Detmers, and then they're speaking very highly of Bachman as well, if you've got those three pitchers that work out, maybe you might find some solace in, you know, you might find some ease in these pitching woes. Maybe they won't have as much pitching woes um, coming in and it'll be coming through the system rather than trying to buy big talent. So 
We'll have to see as it goes on. Again, it's really hard to determine which of these prospects are going to be really good. Like um, Joe Adele of the Angels, he was one of the top baseball prospects, and he and he came up in the 2020 season and bombed. He didn't even hit 200, and we ain't seen hide nor tail of him since. So we'll you just never know until they get up here. We'll see. Um, moving on from the Futures game, we're going to talk about the MLB first-year player draft that also took place this All-Star break. I really like that they did that. They moved the draft during the All-Star break. It's kind of nice to have all of that culminating into one weekend. I actually really liked that. So I'm not going to go through all of these players, and I'm going to preface this information with I'm not even going to try and grade anybody's draft at all. Because it's not like the NFL draft, it's not like the NBA draft, it's not like any of these drafts where these kids come straight out of college and go straight to the pros and you see them in the starting lineup the very next year straight out of their senior year in college. You don't see that. Usually, these kids come out of college, they go play rookie ball, maybe A ball, maybe double A ball, and they develop and you see them in about three or four years. Now, obviously, the higher draft picks are more likely to make it to the bigs than the lower picks, but you never know, right? You the, that, the randomness of this game really shows in the draft as well. Um, so you can't really gauge how well anybody did in the draft. You just have to wait for three or four years and see how everybody pans out. But we're going to go over the draft a little bit. I think a surprise pick to a lot of people was the very first pick of the draft. Henry Davis was selected first by the Pittsburgh Pirates. He's a catcher out of Louisville. He was the number five prospect in all of MLB, but there wasn't really much talk of him going first. They were There was talk of him going high in the draft, but not first. You had people like Jack Leiter and Marcelo Mayer and uh, Jordan Lawler, and Khalil Watson, and Kumar Rocker. They were the ones talked about being, you know, close to number one. Not Henry Davis, but the Pirates took him. He's supposed to be the best bat, the best position player bat in the draft class. So we'll see how that, we'll see how that goes. But really what I want to talk about, I want to talk about the biggest jumps and the biggest steals of this draft. So let, first, let's talk about the biggest jumps. So the biggest jumps of this draft, what I'm talking about is players that were ranked, that were ranked according to MLB.com, ranked lower than where they were drafted. So they were drafted higher than where they were ranked. So the first one that I want to talk about, the biggest jump is a shortstop by the name of Jackson Merrill. He's from Severna Park High School in Maryland. He was, according to MLB.com, he was ranked number 79. He was the number 79 draft prospect, and he jumped 52 spots from his ranking to be picked 27th uh, from the pitch to the pit, Pittsburgh to the San Diego Padres. Now, one thing that I'm going to talk about later in a, in a minute is. He is a shortstop. And I'm going to talk about the prevalence of shortstops in this draft. But, and I think, so that's why I think it's really, really interesting that he was drafted where he was based on his position. Um, but we're going to go, uh, we're going to go to the next one. The next biggest jump is Cooper Kinney. He is a second baseman. And Cooper Kinney. What, uh, he was a second baseman from Baylor High School in Tennessee. According to MLB.com, he was ranked 84th. In uh, He was the 84th best draft prospect. He jumped 50 spots and, wa- and was picked 34th by the Rays in the first com- in competitive balance round A. So that's good for Cooper Kinney, second baseman, another middle, another middle infielder. Um, the next biggest jump is uh, Trey Sweeney. Trey Sweeney was ranked 55th, according to MLB.com, and he was picked 20th overall to the New York Yankees. This is another shortstop. He's from Eastern Illinois College, uh, Eastern Illinois University, and like he jumped 35 spots. But again, he was a shortstop. So I'm going to talk about that here in a quick second. Um, and finally, my last biggest jump in the draft was a left-handed pitcher by the name of Frank Mazzucato. Uh, he's 
a left-handed pitcher from East Catholic High School in Connecticut. He was ranked the number 39, the number 39 draft prospect. He was picked up seventh from the Kansas City Royals. So it's a pretty good jump. Now, let's talk about the biggest steals from this draft. And what I'm talking about by the biggest steals is now it's vice versa. It's the other way around. These players were ranked higher than where they were drafted. Now, this could be for any number of reasons. Maybe they went to the combine and didn't impress as well. Maybe they found some sort of issue and he and they weren't as high on these players as they were going into the draft. So we don't know really why, but according to these rankings, there's steel. So let's talk about this. The first, the biggest steal of them all was Ty Madden who is a right-handed pitcher from the University of Texas. He was the number nine prospect in all of the draft, in this draft class. He was picked up 32nd in the competitive balance round A by the Detroit Tigers. So he dropped 23 spots. The next biggest steal is, um, is Khalil Watson. So Khalil Watson, this one was really interesting because Watson was said to be pretty much the best shortstop in this class. Even though he was a high school player, he was said to be the best shortstop of this class, and there was talks of him going number one to the Pirates. But instead, this number four ranked prospect got drafted 16th. He was the 16th pick to the Miami Marlins. So it'll be interesting to see. Maybe it was because he's a... High school kid can't even be a high school kid because Marcelo Mayer was the first shortstop off the board and he's from East Lake High School in California. He was also the number one draft prospect, but who knows? Uh, again, I have no idea. I don't, we, we really don't know because baseball recruiting is not covered as much as like football is. You don't see college baseball on the regular programming every week, right? You kind of have to catch it on ESPN, on ESPNU. You can't catch it on Fox or CB or any of that like college football does. So you don't really know a lot of these players, especially the high school kids, right? Because they don't televise the high school games. Uh, moving on, uh, we're going to go to uh, the next one is, I lost him. His last, oh, there he is, Uh, Joe Mack, again, to the Marlins. So Marlins got two steals this time. So um, he was ranked, he's another catcher. He was ranked number 19. He was ranked 19th in all of this draft class. He's out of Williamsville East High School in New York. And he was ranked, or he was ranked 19th and got picked up 31st by the Marlins. So... Marlins get two steals here. Will they work out? I don't know. We'll have to wait. And then there were a lot of pit, there were a lot of players that after this that were that dropped by like four or five spots. The one that I want to talk about is Kumar Rocker from Vanderbilt. So he was very much talked about alongside with his uh, teammate Jack Leiter, who is the son of Al Leiter. And they were talked very much, they were both talked about a whole lot. Kumar Rocker is the son of an NFL player, and he's also, uh, he's probably best known for throwing a 19 strikeout no hitter in his sophomore year in the Super Regionals of the College World Series. So I think it was really hard after he threw that 19 strikeout no hitter. I think he. There was really nowhere else to go for him. So I can really, it's really hard for him to make a case to go higher in the draft after his sophomore year. You're throwing 19 strikeout, no hitter. Of course, your stock is going to drop. But what I was really shocked at was there were a number, there are a number of people who passed up on Rocker and a number of other pitchers went before Rocker did. So and what really shocked me was the Angels. The Angels could have picked him up ninth. He was ranked sixth. 
The Angels could have picked him up at pick number nine and chose instead to go with another one, Sam Bachman, who I was just telling you about. Um, he is out of Miami, the University of Miami in Ohio. He was the number 14th prospect and got picked up ninth ahead of Kumar Rocker. So what I hear about Bachman is he's got a plus fastball and a power slider, which spells good right now, I guess, for the relief for a relief pitcher. And it sounds like what the Angels might be planning on doing is using him as a, as a reliever and moving him up really fast as a reliever. And then once he gets to the bigs, change him to a starter. I don't know if that'll work or not. Who knows if that works? But, I mean, we'll just have to see. But then next was Kumar Rocker. He went to the Mets at 10th. So what I'm reading on Kumar Rocker is that a lot of the scouts and, you know, advanced people that were watching Rocker and Lighter and all these pitchers was that he's not as much of a pitcher as he is of a thrower right now. He just throws it. He doesn't pitch. He's kind of rough around the edges and he has some control issues. We'll see. I mean, 10th is not bad and his payday wasn't bad either. For the 10th pick in the draft, he he got a signing bonus of $6 million dollars which is well above what he was supposed to have for being the 10th pick of the draft. But he signed for six, to the Mets for $6 million. So the Mets obviously wanted him. The Mets may have gotten a steal here. We'll never know until Rocker gets to the majors. We'll just have to see. Personally, I'm most excited to see what Jack Leiter can do. Plus Sam Bachman, but that's because I'm an Angel fan. Anyway, let's talk about the prevalence of short stops in this draft, okay? So let's go, I want to look at the last four drafts. So from 2018 to 2021, I found a really interesting pattern here with the positions that are being drafted. Obviously, this draft, the draft is still being overrun by pitching. You can't get enough pitching. So in 2018, 20 pitchers were drafted in the first round. 2019, 15 pitchers were drafted in the first round, and then 15 were also drafted in 2020 and 2021, which it is what it is. I mean, you can't have enough pitching, and you need more pitchers than anything else. So obviously, the pitchers are going to be, be, excuse me, be at a premium here. But what I'm noticing, this is very interesting. Outfielders. So the number of outfielders that have been drafted in the first round have dropped. In 2018, nine outfielders were drafted in the first round. Then 2019 was six. So even though pitchers went down, so did the outfielders. In 2020, seven outfielders made it in the first round. And then in 2021, only four. Only four were drafted in this, four outfielders were drafted in this last draft. So the question is, what position is going up? That position is the middle infield most... Actually, it's just shortstop. So in 2018 to 2020, seven shortstops were drafted in the first round. So in 2018, 2019, and 2020, each of those drafts saw seven shortstops go in the first round. But in 2021, you have 11 shortstops going in the first round. Now, there was talk about how this class of shortstops was elite. You had a lot of shortstops being, you know, being graded really high. But even then, there were still shortstops scattered all over the place in the top 100 prospects. Now, the and then I looked even deeper, and the other thing that I found was interesting was, remember our biggest jumps? So our biggest jump was Merrill, right? And he went, he was number 79 and went to 27th. And Sweeney, uh, Trey Sweeney, he was ranked 55th and went 20th in the draft. So I broke it down to just shortstops. Jackson Merrill, of all shortstops in the draft class, was the 16th best shortstop prospect. Before he was drafted, eight other shortstops went before him. So that brings that that brings the question to mind. Did, is shortstop what the Padres were focusing on? 
which is really interesting because the Padres already have, at the top anyway, you've got Jake Cronenworth, who's having a great season and can play shortstop. you got the best shortstop probably in all the MLB in Fernando Tatis Jr. And then you got Ha Swung Kim on the bench, who is a pretty good bench player, right? But maybe they're kind of low on shortstops, who knows, in their system. But they decided to pull up a the 79th ranked prospect and put him in the top 30. And I think it's because they were quickly, quickly running out of shortstops. And I think that's what they were focusing on getting in the first round was a shortstop. Trey Sweeney, same thing. He was the eighth best shortstop prospect. Okay, so out of all of the shortstops, he was ranked eighth best, right? And he got drafted 20th overall by the Yankees. But he was ranked in all of in all of the draft class, he was 55th. So when you look at shortstops, six other shortstops were drafted before him. So this was just, uh, I think they were looking for another shortstop and they needed to just pick up the next best one and they thought Trey Sweeney was the best one. He was in the top two at this point. So, why shortstops? Why are we focusing on shortstops? I have a theory about this. So, what I'm thinking is, you're seeing a lot more utility players coming up in baseball. You're seeing a lot of players learning multiple positions. You don't see, you're not seeing as much of the one position wonder anymore. You know, how Tony Gwynn only played right field and, you know, things like that. You're seeing people like David Fletcher, who plays second, short, third, and the outfield. You see Chris Bryant, who plays first, third, and the outfield. You see Max Muncy, who's playing first, second, and third, right? You see Schwarber, who's who was initially a catcher, getting moved to the outfield. You see Dominic Smith, who's first, who was a first baseman, and he went to the outfield once Pete Alonso came up. Excuse me. So, I think, what I think they're doing is, I think they're going to try and convert some of these shortstops into utility players that can be used all over the diamond for roster flexibility. Which would, which would make sense. It would be smart. You know, when you have multiple players that can play all over the diamond... It makes it easier to make a lineup. It makes it easier for managers to plug players in other places. And the reason why I think they're targeting shortstops for this is because, in my opinion, in the infield anyway, shortstop is the hardest position to play because you're going to have a number of skill sets to play shortstop. you got to have the range, right, to go up the middle and to go in the, in the hole between or in the hole closer to third base. So you got to have that range. But you also have to have that arm. You have to have the arm to be able to throw it deep in the hole off a backhand. So, you know, whereas the third baseman, third baseman, you really got to have good, you got to have good reflexes, and then you got to have a good arm. First base, you got to be able to mow things down. Second base, you need to have that range, but you don't really need that arm for second base. Because you don't have to throw it as far. Shortstop, they got to throw it all over the diamond. So with that range and that arm, I think it's easier to transfer that out to the outfield. So they may be trying to take these shortstops and turn them into utility players. If they've already got an elite bat, make them learn multiple positions so that they can play anywhere and be in the lineup more. It's just a theory. Could be wrong, but... I think it makes sense, right? I think so. It's just a theory, but we will see how these players pan out in probably three or four years. Um, the catchers may be a little sooner. Catchers seem to rise through the ranks kind of faster. All right, let's move away from the MLB. Let's go to national. Let's go to international play. More specifically, the Olympics are in a week, so I think I want to. I want to introduce you guys the rosters for both the baseball and the softball team. The United States is sending both a baseball and a softball team to Tokyo in a week 
for the 2021 Olympic Games. Now, hopefully, the Americans do very well in both. Um, On paper, they're set up to do well in both the baseball and softball tournament. So let's go over the roster, and I want to show you guys who you're going to see coming out of this. So let's start with baseball, and let's start with the infielder. So you have Nick Allen, who's the number three A's prospect. So you're seeing a lot of, the, the other thing I noticed here is you're seeing a lot of prospects coming out. You see some ranked prospects coming to play the Olympics. And the other thing I'm going to tell you is if, the play, any player that's in the MLB right now is not eligible to play in the Olympics. So you're not going to see Vladimir Guerrero Jr. You're not going to see Shohei Otani. You're not going to see, you know, David Fletcher. You're not going to see Trey Mancini, Pete Alonso. You're not going to see any of those guys play. But you will see former MLB players all over the place. So uh, the first one is Nick Allen, who is the number three prospect in the A system. He's at AAA right now. Um, He's going to play shortstop second base. You have Eddie Alvarez, who is in rarefied company as being one of the, one of few Americans to qualify for both the summer and the Olympic winter games, or the summer and the winter Olympic games. So Eddie Alvarez was also a speed skater where he took home a medal. And now he's going to be playing in the infield for the Olympic baseball team. He is in the AAA system for the Miami Marlins. Tristan Casas, who is the top Red Sox prospect, will be playing first base mostly for the Olympic team. Uh, He's at AA for the Red Sox right now. And headlining the infield, probably, is uh, former MLB player and free agent Todd Frazier. So the Todd father is going to be at third base for the American Olympic team. So good veteran presence in the infield and a little bit of pop in the bat. It'll be interesting to see with some of these other um, some of these other teams how he fares. Uh, moving to the outfield, you have Tyler Austin in the outfield. He plays in the Nippon Baseball League in uh, Korea. He's in the Yokohama Dino Bears. Uh, Eric Filia, who's in the Mariner system, he will also be out there along with Bubba Starling, who has had some experience in the outfield, but right now he's in the AAA system for the Royals. Our utility play, our utility players are going to be Patrick Kivelhan, who is in the Padres system, Jamie Westbrook, who is in the Brewer system, and Jack Lopez, who is the second uh, Red Sox prospect to be on the team. Uh, let's move to catchers. You got two catchers on the roster. You have, uh, former big leaguer, Tim Fedorovich, who is in the Dodger system right now. He's at AAA. Uh, he will be behind the dish along with Mark Kolozaveri, who is the number 29, who's the 29th ranked Reds prospect. He's at their AA affiliate right now. Moving on to the pitchers. As I mentioned earlier, he competed in the Futures game, Shane Baz, that who is the number 71 MLB prospect, and the number five Rays prospect is going to be pitching for the Olympic team, along with Anthony Carter, who plays in the Mexican League for Saraperos de Saltillo. Uh, you also have Brandon Dixon from the Cardinal system, uh, Anthony Ghost, who has had some MLB uh, MLB experience. Um, in the Indian system, he's going to play. Uh, and f- journeyman veteran Edwin Jackson is going to be a pitcher for the American squad. So it'll be good to see Edwin Jackson again. He has been on a ton of teams, and he's been good. He's been bad. So we'll, it'll be interesting to see which Edwin Jackson we get. And the one that I'm super excited to see is former Giants in A who's looking to make a comeback Scott Casimir is going to be on the um, major, or is going to be on the Olympic team. And did you guys know he's in the Giants system? He's in the he's at their AAA affiliate, so he's looking to make a comeback. We'll see if this international play gives him some spotlight. Um, he is alongside Nick Martinez from the Fukuoka SoftBank Hawks in the Nippon Baseball League, and Scott McGuff, who plays for the Tokyo Yakult Swallows in the Nippon Baseball League in Japan. 
Uh, former major leaguer David Robert David Robertson will be coming out of the pen um, for the Americans as uh, and Joe Ryan, the number eleven Rays prospect, and Ryder Ryan, uh, who is in the Rangers pro, uh, in the Rangers system, will also be playing along. Finally, rounding it out, Simeon Woods Richardson, the number sixty eight major league prospect in all of or the number the sixty eighth ranked major league prospect will be rounding out. The roster. Now let's look at all of the countries competing in in the baseball tournament. So, the on paper the best team to be playing the U.S. is not the best. The U.S. right now on paper is ranked fourth. They've got two teams in this tournament that are ranked higher than them. First one, ranked number one, is Japan, and they are headlined by former Yankee Masahiro Tanaka. Masahiro Tanaka will be the ace of the Japanese team, um, and he will be looking for some exposure, looking to get back into the major leagues. He left the major leagues in 2020 after, during the COVID season, and he's going to be looking to come back, probably sign with the Yankees. The And then the third best team is on paper is South Korea. So South Korea, there really isn't anybody that we know anyway that's notable in on the South Korean team. They mainly they mainly picked from their league, from the Korean league. So it'll be interesting to see how the Korean league does with some of these other former major leaguers or major leaguers. It'll be interesting to see how they how they hold up. Uh the and then the US is the fourth ranked team. And then you have the the fifth ranked team, Mexico, is going to be in this tournament, headlined by former major leaguer and first baseman Adrian Gonzalez. He will headline the Mexican team. Um, Gonzalez, um, of course, was a was a former Padre, former Red Sox, and a former Dodger. So good to see Adrian Gonzalez back on the field. And the seventh ranked Dominican Republic team will also be there. Um, headlined by former uh, major leaguer Jumbo Diaz. He's playing in the Dominican Republic League. Um, <coughs> excuse me. But um, he will also... But he's also had some major league experience. Then you have Emilio Vargas, who is in the White Sox system. You have Heysan Guzman, who is in the High A affiliate of the Royals. Excuse me. And then you have Luis Liberato, who is a in the at the AAA affiliate for the Mariners. And you have Julio Rodriguez, the number five MLB prospect and the number two prospect in the Mariners system, is also going to play for the Dominican Republic team. So this will be some good um this will be some good exposure for him. Um, see how he does with some of these former major leaguers and some of these guys who have major league experience. Um, see where he shapes up with everybody else. But the Dominican Republic team is headlined by former major leaguers Melky Cabrera, slugger Jose Bautista will be back on the diamond, and Emilio Bonifacio will be in the infield as well for the Dominicans. And finally, what I think is probably a surprise appearance in this Olympic tournament is Team Israel, headlined by Ryan LaVarnway behind the dish, and Ian Kinsler will make will go for Team Israel as well. I loved watching Kinsler play, so I'll be happy to see him play for Team Israel in the Olympics. So let's move to the softball uh, softball team. Now, as excited as I am to have baseball in the Olympics, I'm really excited to watch these ladies play because these ladies are no joke. These ladies are going to be really, really tough to beat. Now, they were upset the last time they were in there, 2008, by Japan. But these girls are coming out, and I can't commend the American selection squad enough that I think they really put together a great softball team, and they're going to be really, really hard to beat. So let me just tell you some of these uh, some who some of these players are. Now, all of these players gain their notoriety from college softball because obviously after college softball, there really isn't anywhere else to go and softball really isn't marketed anywhere else except for America. And even then, 
usually they only get to college. So um, I'm going to tell you where some of these ladies come from and what they did during their college career. So the first one I'm going to talk to you about is Ali Aguilar, who is an infielder who played for the University of Washington and her senior year was 2017. So she played in 222 games and slashed a 366 average, a 458 on base percentage, and a 707 slugging. She hit 58 career homers and 208 RBIs in 222 games. In 2014, she played in 59 games that college season and hit for 411. Now, if you were to take her college statistics and average it out to a 162-game season, she would have hit about 42 homers and 151 RBIs. So expect that girl to mash. She's going to be hitting some bombs. Um, Alongside of her on the infield is going to be Valerie Arioto from California. She's from the University of California, and her senior year was 2012. She played in quite a few more games, 256 games. She hit for a 339 average of 528, 528 OBP and a 656 average or a 656 slugging. What was really impressive is she has more career walks in her college career than career hits. She has 223 hits and 256 career walks. That's insane. She walked more than she hit. Along with hitting 54 career homers and 186 RBIs. In in the 2009 season, she had 81 walks and 49 hits for a hit-to-walk ratio of 1.65. So for every hit, she was walking once or twice. And then in 2011, she had 94 walks compared to 50 hits for an even higher walk-to-hit ratio of 1.88. So she was walking almost two times as much as she was hitting. She can also pitch. In her college career, she had a record of 63-24 and and 580 innings pitched. She had a 1.75 ERA with 697 career strikeouts. We'll get to the pitchers, though, here in a minute. I don't think they're going to need much help on the mound. Uh, To round out the infield, you have Delaney Spaulding, who in 243 games, she hit a 369 average, a 421 OBP, and a 720 slugging. She hit 61 career homers and 229 RBIs. So when you average that out in a 162-game season, you're getting 40 homers and 152 RBIs. These are league leaders in homers and RBIs, people. She, They are going to mash this baseball. Okay? And then in the outfield, the outfield doesn't get much worse. Okay? The outfield, you have Haley McClaney. From the University of Alabama, and her first and her last season was 2016. In 248 games, she hit 447 with a 569 OBP and a 690 slugging with 27 homers and 162 RBIs. So look for her to get on base. She's going to be at the top of this lineup. Okay. In all four years of her college tenure, all of her college seasons, her lowest batting average was 436. So in all four of her college seasons, she hit 436 or better. That is insane. Some of the best college softball players in the world, and you're telling me she hits almost half the time. Um, and then you also have uh, Michelle... Oh, I'm gonna bur- I'm gonna murder her name, Michelle Moultrie. She's from the University of Florida. Her last season was 2012. In 249 games, she hit 385 with a 447 OBP and a 569 slugging, 22 homers and 116 RBIs. In the 2010-2011 college season, she hit for a 443 average in 69 games. So these girls are getting ready. To mash, in my opinion. Now, if you are if you are watching the college, you know, college softball, you may be familiar with this other person. Uh, she just finished her season at uh, at UCLA. She just finished her college tenure. 
Bubba Nichols will also be on the American squad along with Janie Reed and Kelsey Stewart. Um, but Bubba Nichols will be playing. She She's listed as a utility player in 217 games. She hit a 357 average, 417 on base, and a 624 slugging, 42 homers, and 181 RBIs. So these girls are going to mash. Okay. You have catching. Catching, you have Amanda, uh, headlining Amanda Chidester. She went to the University of Michigan. Her last season was 2012. In 231 games, she hit 355 as a catcher with a 419 OBP and a 597 slugging. She had 40 homers and 199 career RBIs. That's If you average that out for a 162-game season, you're getting 139 RBIs out of her. And then also, if you are following the... Um, if you're following the recent college softball uh, circuit, um, you will know this name, Deja, Deja Mulipala, will also be uh, behind the dish for the Americans. She went to the University of Arizona and 237 games. She hit 335 and with a 445 uh, OBP and a 716 slugging percentage with 68 career homers and 203 RBIs. That's good enough for 46 homers and 139 RBIs in a 162-game season. All right? Let's look at the pitchers really quick. The pitchers are going to be bananas. All right? So it's headlined by two of two pitchers who have already seen Olympic play. They were on the 2018. You have Monica Abbott and Kat Osterman coming back to play Olympic baseball again. So let's start with Monica Abbott. Monica Abbott was, and and Kat Osterman both, were from the University of Texas. Monica Abbott, in her tenure at the University of Texas, didn't do much. She only set the Division I record in wins, with a, career wins, 189, career shutouts, 112, strikeouts in a season, 724, career strikeouts, 2,440 strikeouts. Um... Division one record in season games pitched with 69, career games pitched in 253, and career innings pitched in 1,448. If that's not enough for you, in her career, she has a record in 253 games. She has 178 complete games with a record of 189 and 34, 112 shutouts with a .79 ERA. She ain't giving up runs, folks. She is not going to give up any runs. Kat Osterman is no slouch either. Also from the University of Texas, she didn't do much, but set a record nine career perfect games. She's got more perfect games than Nolan Ryan has no hitters, people. All right. She had three different scores inning streaks of 60 innings or more. She's second in career strikeouts behind her teammate, Monica Abbott, 2,265. She's first in career strikeout rate, 14.34 Ks per seven innings. She started 148 games, and 121 of those are complete games. Okay? And she... uh, she had a record of 136 and t- wins and 25 losses, 85 of those being shutouts. She pitched a total of 1,105 innings to the tune of a .51 career ERA. Between those two, they ain't giving up any runs. It's going to be really hard for anybody to get hits, all right? But along with that... Um, you're going to see Ali Carda, who's no slouch herself, career 248 ERA and 178 appearances. She can also hit, hitting, um, hitting 342 with a 461 OBP and a 614 slugging. All right. But one, the one pitcher that a lot of people will probably know, Rachel Garcia is going to be on here pitching for the Americans. Rachel Garcia is probably one of the more notable recent softball pitchers as of late. She won the 2019 National Championship with the UCLA Bruins. She just finished her career with UCLA. In her storied career, she has 149 appearances on the mound. 95 of those are starts. She pitched 749 innings for a 99 and 17 
record with a 1.43 ERA and 996 career strikeouts. She's also hitting at a 337 clip with a 430 OBP and a 594 slugging, 43 homers and 175 RBIs. And she didn't do anything else but win NCAA Collegiate Player of the Year in both 2018 and 2019. This softball team is going to be the one to beat. I'm sorry, watch out world, because America is coming at you with softball. So the other thing is no other country really has women playing softball. Except for Japan is really, obviously they upset the Americans. So hopefully, and they're looking to do it again. They are in this tournament. The USA, of course, obviously, is ranked number one. You have Japan after that at number two. Canada will also be competing. They're number three. Then you have the Mexican team at number five. Also, the Australians will be in this tournament at number eight. And then the Italians will also play at number nine. So it'll be really, really interesting and fun to see these two squads go at it. Hopefully for more, but right now, the future of Olympic baseball and softball is in the air. We'll see what happens. Okay, so we're closing in on the end of the podcast here. But before I go, I want to quickly talk about that this fantasy league that I... that. Felipe and I are both in Felipe Malicio, the Total Bases podcast. That was my guest last week. Um, he and I are in this league. We didn't get a chance to talk about it because we ran out of time. But um, I wanted to quickly talk about this this league that we're in. Okay, so we've got um, so we've got a Yahoo league going on, and we've called it a Fangraphs league because really. What this league is doing is the way it's scored, it's a points league. So this points league, um, the points are structured a little bit differently. The points are structured off of the linear weights or run expectancy of different events that happen in baseball. So the question is, what is a, what is a run expectancy? So for each event that happens in baseball, the fan, uh, fan graphs has figured out a statistical number that tells you for each event how many runs are expected to be scored. So for example, if a player gets a hit, just a regular hit, right? Just a single. That lin- the linear weight of that or the run expectancy is 0.56 runs. So you're looking at half a run there with just a hit. Obviously, a double is more, so is a triple and a homer, right? A homer is a .94 run run expectancy, okay? So what they did was basically they took the run expectancy or the linear weights of different, uh, different outcomes or events in baseball, in a, base, in a particular baseball game, and they multiplied it by 10 to give you your points. So for example... In the batter category, your at-bats are at a negative one. So you're already at a minus one when the player steps in. Player steps into bat. But then a hit, just a regular hit, is 5.6. A double is 2.9 points. A triple is 5.7 points. A home run is 9.4 points. A stolen base is 1.9 points. If they're caught stealing, it's minus 2.8 points. A walk and a hit-by-pitch are both three points. So for example, let's say I have Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and he goes up there and he hits a bomb, right? So you've got, that's a at bat minus one. So you're already at minus one, but then that's a hit, right? That's a hit. So he hit a home run. So that's a hit. That's 5.6 points. Negative one plus 5.6 is 4.6. So you're at 4.6 points. But he also hit a homer. So you're looking at nine. So you're looking at another 9.4 points added there. So you're looking at a total of about 13 points in one hit. But you're also you're down, you're down a point each time the player steps up to the bag. So 
I think, I'm still getting a feel of this league, but I feel like this league values players who get on base more than strikeouts. More than, you know, just just flat out strikeouts. You're looking for people who get on base and who walk, right? It really has changed the way you covet some of these players. So some of these players that you wouldn't necessarily go after in a regular draft, all of a sudden have become more valuable. So you got Cedric Mullins up there. You probably would never have guessed to be up there. Um, Jesse Winker with his great season. Joey Gallo is up there. Uh, Brian Reynolds is up there. You may not necessarily. Max Muncy gains a whole new, with his on-base uh, ability, he gains a whole new sort of, uh, he gains a whole new sort of notoriety in this league. Now, let's move to pitching. So you've got the pitching, same thing, linear weights. They had to kind of mess around with it a little bit. Um, and they also had to give points to saves and holds so that there's some sort of um, want for a relief pitcher. So innings pit, one inning pitch to 7.4 points. You have a save at 5 points. Each hit that you give up is minus 2.6 points. Each home run given up is minus 12.3 points. Then you got a walk and a hit batter are both minus three. Each strikeout is two and each hold is four points. So you don't want too many, you don't want too many relievers. I have two. I have Craig Kimbrell and I have Giovanni Gallegos. And I'm trying I'm trying to get rid of Giovanni Gallegos and really just only have Craig Kimbrell. But I haven't been able to do that so far. But the top um, the top pitchers based on this point system is actually not Jacob deGrom. It's Zach Wheeler because he's eating up innings. He's leading. He's one of the league leaders in innings, and Jacob deGrom is not. But Jacob deGrom is second, so he's doing all right by himself. But you have people like Corbin Burns. Trevor Rogers is the seventh best pitcher. Chris Bassett is the ninth best pitcher. Herman Marquez is the tenth best pitcher. You're getting the you're getting different people that are up there. Right? You're getting different people that are up there in um that are that are up there in the rankings in different spreadsheets. So I think for pitchers, it values the innings eaters. It values the guys that go deeper into games, not these guys that are pitching four innings. Yeah, they have eight strikeouts, but they only went four innings. So, you know, that eight strikeouts, you're only getting 16 points out of that, right? So I'm getting, I'm getting 16 points if he pitches three innings. So I want more innings so that I get more points. So we'll see how that goes. Um, and when I drafted... I really didn't like my team. I started noticing that my team really wasn't going to be good. I, I got the second pick in the draft, which I kind of like drafting in the middle. I seem to do very well in the middle, not necessarily at the top or at the bottom of drafts. So I've made a lot of trades. Um, I had Jake Cronenworth. I traded him and Rymel, Tropi- and Rymel Tapia for Tim Anderson, DJ LeMayhew, and Jeff McNeil. So all three of those hitters are really, really good hitters. And you have Jake Cronenworth, who's having a great season, but is overachieving right now. And you have Rymel Tapia, who I don't really believe in. So I'm selling high on Cronenworth and low on these other three hitters in hopes that at least one of them pulls their head out of their butt and does what they're supposed to be doing um, in the second half. Um, So I've done that. I also traded Jesse Winker, who I'm not predicting to have as good of a second half as he did first half. I traded him for Chris Bassett, who is one of the best pitchers right now. Um, Doesn't look like he's going to slow down. Uh, I also traded uh, Austin Riley for Jonathan Scope. I think I won that one. Uh, Jonathan Scope has been doing very well. Um, And then I'm also looking at trading um, Trevor Rogers. I have Trevor Rogers as well. Um, we'll see if he hits a rookie wall. I'm kind of anticipating that. Hopefully I can get something for him. Um, but my offense is pretty good. I have, uh, Salvador Perez, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And Shohei Otani, along with, um, sneaky performers like Brian Reynolds, Kyle Tucker, uh, Jose Altuve, um, 
uh, Yuli Gurriel is having a great season, um, and Mark Canna. So I have a good offense. I have a decent pitching staff. Um, so we'll see. This league moves me into our last call. So the last call segment of this personal story, it's going to be fantasy related. And I wanted to talk about this when Felipe was here, but Felipe and I ran out of time. Felipe and I have already kind of some sort of rivalry, I guess you want to say. So last year was my first year playing fantasy baseball and Felipe has played for a very, very long time. He started a newbie league for people that had never really played before, people that are new, and he was in it. So I played. My first match was Felipe. I went up against Felipe and I beat him. My first week, I was shocked. I was so happy. I beat him. But I didn't play him after that until we got to the playoffs. So we got to the playoffs. He was my first match in the semifinals. He was my match in the semifinals. And it was him and I. And I was beating him the entire week. And he came back. I'll give him that. He came back. We ended up tying. And he ended up winning on home field advantage. I was on the wrong side of the computer screen. I was the visitor. That's why I lost. I was so mad. So I bring that up to him all the time. Home field advantage. Home field advantage. What's a, what a dumb way to win home field advantage. So I got my revenge though because he's in this new Yahoo league that I'm in and I just played him and I beat him. So I'm going to say that my record against Felipe is 2-0 and 1. Two wins, zero losses, and a tie. If Felipe was on here, he'd probably say that I'm 2-1. But he's not here. So I'm going to say 2-0 and 1. All right. So with that being said, hopefully I do well in this Yahoo League. And um, hopefully you all have a good week. Thank you for listening to another episode of Round Trippers. We will bring you another uh, another episode next week on Wednesday. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, we're, the Round Trippers podcast is on Spot, uh, Spotify. We're on Google Podcasts and uh, we're on Anchor. We're on a lot of uh, a lot of places that you find podcasts. So until next time, have a good one and thank you for listening.